Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 122 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we discussed some ideas for really simple automation of standard, repeatable computer tasks and processes. In this episode, we move from the small and practical to big ideas and more theoretical future directions in law practice and the role technology might play in that. Tom, what's in our agenda for this episode? In this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we'll be talking about the recent Forum for Legal Evolution conference that Dennis attended and how it relates or or doesn't relate to the rash of other conferences discussing disruption in the legal profession. In our second segment, we'll take a look at the notion of gamification and what role it might play in the law practice. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second this podcast is over. But first, let's get started on our main topic, and uh, that's the Forum on Legal Evolution. For the past few weeks, uh, past month or so, I think we've seen a a number of conferences presented dedicated to the idea of innovation in the practice of law. There's the reInvent Law Conference that uh, was on the West Coast last year. It was in New York this year. Harvard, the week that we're recording this, Harvard hosted a program on the legal profession that tackled the concept of disruptive innovation in the market for legal services. And you, Dennis, just a while back, attended another one of these conferences, and we thought we'd discuss that in the first part of this podcast. So, Dennis, do you want to go ahead and start by giving us an overview of the Forum for Legal Evolution? Yeah, this was a really great event, I think, that uh, happened at the end of February in, in New York City. This is called Forum on Legal Evolution, put together by two law professors, uh, Bill Henderson at Indiana and Dan Katz at Michigan State, and the famous blogger, Adam Smith Esquire, Bruce McEwen. And it was an invitation-only conference, which when you get the invitation is kind of flattering and makes you interested in going. But for me, I was really intrigued because of what's happening in the reInvent Law area, and especially what Bill and, and Dan are doing in terms of education, bringing technology into legal education, and their outreach to members of the profession. And I, I think they're at a, a really interesting place, at a really interesting time in where the law practice and the approaches to law that we are taking taking are going and then obviously in what you know some people consider a crisis in the world of, of legal education so there were about a hundred people there and covered I'd say like sort of four sets of presentations first they talked about the early adopter curve which is technically known as the Rogers diffusion curve and they talked about two big areas that that are coming into play, uh, at least to some extent, in especially the big law area practice. That would be predictive analytics and business process design and management. And there were some examples of that. So it was held in a great location in New York City, very comfortable 
place and presentation, discussion, Q&A. A little bit of networking. Uh, I guess it's one of those things, and, and maybe it's just me, Tom, but when I go to these things, I always wish I had just had more time to meet and talk to other people. But you know, good ideas, uh, great people, people I knew, new people I, I got to meet. And it does seem like there's some energy around some of these ideas. I think that seeing the fact that there are this many conferences going on on this subject is really proof of that, Dennis, that people are starting to take more of an interest in uh, innovation and the fact that maybe recognizing that the, that the law is, has reached sort of this stagnant area where uh, new thinking needs to take place. And that kind of leads me to, you know, my first question, one of the first areas that they talked about was about the early adopter curve. We talk about being early adopters of things all the time. It's a little bit different with the law in general. I was reading a, an article on Above the Law about the conference, and uh, I thought it was very interesting that they produced a chart that compared the law to Alabama. Can you kind of elaborate on that? And I think it has something to do with corn. So can you tell us what that whole thing is about? Yeah, so Bill Henderson did a talk on this Rogers diffusion curve. And one of the examples he chose was about the adoption of hybrid seed corn in Iowa and the studies of by Rogers himself about how that adoption occurred and, and sort of how that curve was developed of how the early uh, adopters came in. It took a while for things to happen. And then there was a, a sort of rapid adoption and then gradually everybody was using it. So they used seed corn as an example and it was it was interesting because it illustrated a lot of points and then they, they mapped it in Iowa and then mapped it in several other states. You know, So the Iowa thing happened in the 1930s through the 1940s and then in other states like Alabama, it didn't happen until the, the 50s. Even though people saw the benefits of the hybrid corn even before the adoption really started to happen. So the notion would be that on some of these things, like uh, the, the other areas, the predictive analytics, what people are calling big data these days, especially the business process things, the lean, the Six Sigma, agile, some of those things. And if you're familiar with the business process lingo, you would recognize haven't really come to the law. So in terms of the adoption of technology, the idea would be, was posed that law would be more like Alabama in that other industries, other professions had adopted some of these technologies earlier in the same pattern, that same sort of early innovators to late adopters type curve. And, you know, and so that's the notion there. It was a good frame to get you thinking about this. And in a way, that early adopter curve is kind of a simple concept, it seems to me. But what was really interesting, or what got me thinking was there is this sort of time component to that adoption. Because even if I look at early adoption, so sort of two thoughts, Tom, and maybe you you might pick up on one or both of these, is that you say, well, there is this adoption and it happens over time. So that curve could be kind of spread out or it could be, you know, it's kind of squeezed together because the adoption happens fast. And there is this also the sense that once you reach this critical mass, 
everybody's adopting these things. So that's one thing. So you say, well, where is law on that curve? Is it a longer curve? Which is sort of, it seems to me, uh, you know, rather than the kind of the squeeze curve or, or taller curve. So that's one thing. And then the other thing was to say, if I'm an early adopter, which probably I am, and you say, here's what's happening, and here's this curve, and the early adopters adopt some technology, and then you know, before too long, everybody's adopting it. What became interesting to me is, as I said, well, I was a really early adopter on document assembly. I mean, I did that 20 years ago. And so on this curve, it's hard to imagine the curve is still going on, although it is. And, and so do the early adopters kind of drop out at some point because that technology that you adopted early becomes you know, passe or goes past you? And so how does that curve really work as you're moving on and moving on? So, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting riff on the whole notion of the early adopter curve. Well, I think that you're right. I think that in terms of the different types of curves that you're describing, I really think that for the practice of law, we're looking at at a much longer, less steep, squeezed curve, I guess is what you were calling it. I just don't see, I think that we have, we have lawyers, if you're talking about document assembly, we have lawyers at every spectrum because we still have people, uh, you know, we still have, have sessions at ABA Tech Show on document assembly as if it's the hot new thing for people to talk about. And and only in the past couple of years have we seen some really interesting tools come out to kind of be alongside the tools that you've been using or working with for, for 20 years. So I think that, and this kind of leads me to my next question is, I think that, you know, what makes the law different? One of the charts, the adoption charts talks about how, you know, manufacturing maybe is first in innovation and then finance comes after that and then medicine and then consulting and, and law follows in terms of industry. And, you know, I know that at this form, Forum, the two major innovation things that were talked about were the idea of process management, process improvement, and then predictive analytics and that sort of issue. But let's talk first about process management and process improvement. I know enough about things like Lean and Six Sigma to be dangerous. I know that they are something that the biggest companies practice because they're big. They're big companies and they need to develop better processes. I know that the law firms that are beginning to adopt these are the very biggest law firms because they are big and they need to manage their process more efficiently. So I'm imagining there's a lot of solo and small firm lawyers out there who are listening to this thinking, why do I need to be anywhere on the curve for dealing with process management or any of that? And that's kind of my question is, is that is part of the adoption problem, the fact that we have companies, law firms of all different sizes and complexions? Well, I, I think that if you were not in a big firm, not looking at sort of the big, you know, big process things that were talked about, I could see people tuning out because saying, well, this really doesn't apply to me. And if you hear that, you know, the general counsels are the clients, there's a lot of people who do different types of, of law who would say that doesn't even compute for me. So keep that in mind as, as some part of this. And then also that you have to scale some of these things. So the discussion by Ray Bailey on process design and implementation was one of the best things that I've seen, really thought provoking. But it took 
place in the context of sort of big e-discovery. But it really looked at some of the things that were going on. Once you have the data to look at and start to evaluate that. And so he did talked a lot about having actual stats on how many different lawyers, paralegals, others looked at a given document during the discovery process and how many times they did it. And it was astonishing, you know, that they could track that some documents were looked at more than a hundred times. And then there's a cost associated with that. And then you'd say, if we analyze that process and we eliminate some of the steps so that you reduce the number of touches because it doesn't improve the accuracy and in fact may make things worse then you go, I see how that makes sense in a big thing. But then it scales down, too. So you could say some of the principles that you learn from these approaches, the sort of lean, the Six Sigma, those sorts of things can be applied to other processes. So that's one thing. And then the other thing that you talked about, why is law different? That's what you start to think about in this because you say, the thing I've always struggled with as a lawyer and the billable hour notion is that everything I do has the same value. And so the stuff that I do as a lawyer that's most creative is charged the same amount of dollars per hour as answering the phone, writing a transmittal letter, doing those sorts of things. And I think that when you look at the process thing, what's kind of interesting to me is lawyers think that everything that we do is different. And so even the things that can't possibly be different at all, like the basic phone call, that's answering an email, that's that sort of thing. Lawyers are resistant to taking the learnings from other businesses and saying, how can you improve those processes and do them more efficiently? And, and then I think it also goes back to the basic question, why is everything I do as a lawyer charged at the same amount when obviously it all has different values? And I think clients also struggle with that notion too. Well, and I think that goes back to the very old notion that the law is a profession and not a business, which is starting to lose some foothold in terms of people's thinking. But there's still a lot of lawyers out there who say we are different. We do things differently. And this is the way they've always been done. And this is the way we'll always do them. I want to come back and talk a little bit because I sense that the way that you describe it, it sounds to me like maybe if we mapped out that adopter's curve in this terms of the law for at least these big issues for process management, for predictive analysis, and I want to ask you some questions about that in a second. It seems like like maybe we're putting the bigger firms at the front of the curve and the smaller, medium-sized firms at the end. Once process management and predictive analytics have gotten into law firms and are being used in ways that then the smaller firms can appreciate and understand how it applies to the way that they practice, then maybe they're at the back end of that adoption curve. Did that even get brought up. I mean, I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head, but I don't know if that's something that that even gets mentioned in the context of these topics because they are so big firm related. Well, to some extent, but I think there's a more interesting thing. And and as I always say that, Tom, to me, you exemplify this in the company that you work for, is that a lot of these process things are going to new forms of vendors. And there were lots of examples of those. 
And all this ties up in this bundle that says, is law different? Because you say, well, law is a profession, but there's a lot of things in terms of, say, you know, data analytics, e-discovery, that outside vendors are taking over a lot of what law firms can do. And it's starting with these huge data sets and other things like that. It's starting to become less and less realistic that law firms of any size can do this on their own. And so some of these things where you say, well, let's look at these processes and get improvements, it's going to vendors who are sort of saying, this is not practice of law in the classic sense. This is something that uh, a business that we can do because it's process, it's not the profession of law. And that's where I think it really gets interesting and where lawyers really have to start thinking. So I I don't know, Tom, whether I said that well, but that was one thing I definitely took away from this. Well, I see a lot of parallels there to e-discovery, which is e-discovery vendors, and many of them are the same ones who are offering these predictive analytics tools, are saying, we can handle the technology. You don't have the infrastructure to do that. You shouldn't have the infrastructure to do that. You're a law firm. You take care of the practicing law. We'll take care of the rest of that. What I thought has been interesting is, is that in terms of just pure e-discovery, we've seen law firms, I see this happening more often in companies than in law firms, but we see law firms and in house legal departments starting to take over more of those processes themselves and to a certain extent taking some of the the front part of the e-discovery process away from the vendors. And, And that's leaving, I think, the big stuff like predictive analysis, review, the things that it's much harder for law firms and and for corporations with legal departments to have to manage. So I'll I'll come back to predictive analysis and say that predictive coding has been an e-discovery issue for a couple of years now. And and while it was at one point in time, sort of the bold new frontier, now courts are ordering it on a regular basis. It seems to have established some sort of mainstream acceptance, even though it may only be used again by the larger firms that, uh, that smaller, medium-sized firms are not using it to the extent that the larger firms are. What was the general sense of talking about predictive coding and analysis at this in terms of innovation, given that it's something that firms have been doing now for a couple of years? Well, I think that I don't know that it was divided out so much that I mean that predictive coding sort of was an undercurrent in all of this. To me, one of the most interesting talks was Dan Katz talking about how he's actually teaching data analytics, uh, you know, as as part of a law school class or as a law school class to give you know his law students a different set of skills to bring into the market. So I think that there's. The predictive stuff kind of gets wrapped into, you know, what's coming down the road here in, in the whole big data area. And I had a couple conversations, you know, side conversations with people where we were talking about, well, what isn't what's really interesting when you start to apply some of these e-discovery tools and the predictive coding, which is one thing, but but sort of the, the analytics on to what the law firms are doing when you start to analyze what you know what courts and judges are doing, how things go through the system, what can you learn to advise a client based on, you know, how judges decide things. There's really a great discussion of trying to predict 
how Supreme Court takes on cases. And then to say, hey, if you have these factors, you can tell a client that there's, you know, a tiny percent chance that Supreme Court will grant cert on this. But if you have these factors, it's more significant. So you could actually help a client to say, no matter how strongly you feel about this, this one doesn't make sense to go forward, or you need to understand the likelihood that you're dealing with. And so people are playing with ways to say, what can we learn in terms of those factors to actually predict results? So there's a lot just starting to happen. And in law, it's it's totally baby steps. And so I, I think people can jump in, even the law students, and do some really cool things right now, but probably in in other areas. And, you know, obviously I have an interesting perspective given where I work, but I think in other areas, people are doing way more advanced things. And that was also a sub-theme here is like, why is law so isolated when there are other things already happening that it seems like law should be learning from? Well, and I think, you know, you bringing up the example of Supreme Court is one example of how what I've been taking from this and what you've been talking about has sort of been, how does this apply across the board to firms of all sizes? And that's one example that I think would be of use to a firm of all sizes because it's publicly available information that you could then work with a vendor to understand that information. Where I see a lot of the types of things that were talked about at this forum really happening in the big firms is because when we talk about big data, Small and medium-sized law firms are not dealing with, quote, big data yet. They're just not, and they're probably not going to for a while. Big firms are already starting to do this. They have their own big data within their firms, but they're also dealing with the, quote, big data of their clients as well. And so, I, like I said, I, I really think that the big law firms are going to be leading on these types of innovations, at least for the foreseeable future. And then whatever benefit comes will then I think slowly trickle down to small, medium-sized firms. But to the extent that tools can be developed, like the one you mentioned for the Supreme Court, things that can benefit firms of all sizes, I'm, I'm excited for that. And I, and I hope stuff like that can, uh, can, can come up. I just want to make one quick comment on that, time because when you said that, it made me think, okay, so we're all doing our taxes now, and you use a you know, a tax software program, the people who do their own taxes. And one of the things that they've done is they've analyzed these things to help you avoid audit. And they tell you like what the average charitable, you know, contributions are for somebody with your income and stuff. And so they've taken those analytics and turned it into advice in a way, in a really simple, easy to understand way. And that's where I think there's potential in law that people you know, when you say law is only a profession and I charge so much by the hour, you don't think in those terms. And the other thing I wanted to say is that when you say the small versus large firm thing, obviously, or to me, obviously, there are, you know, lawyers breaking away from big firms who are starting things. But I think what's interesting is not that they're thinking small firms as people experiment with this technology or or come up with those types of analytics tools, is they're thinking about starting companies, not law firms. And that's a big change. And that also makes us look over to uh, to Great Britain and say, their non-lawyers are allowed to invest in law firms. And, and so potentially, you have more capital to do technology, which we don't have here in the US at this point. 
Well, now that you talk about lawyers breaking off to form companies, then you're sort of arguing against the idea of law firm innovation, saying that lawyers can only be innovative if they get out of the law. But uh, I suppose that's a conversation for another day. We're going to move on to the next segment. But before we do that, I just want to say, you know, there have been over the past couple of years, we've seen things on innovation. We've seen conferences uh, helping law firms and, and lawyers learn to innovate. You know, how is what you attended here? How is this different? How is it different from what we've seen in the past? And do you see something different in the coming months and years? I think that all of these different things that you touched on that were happening about the same time all are interesting in somewhat different ways. And I kind of go back to what Manholm and I did with LexThink several years ago. And where I think the, the thing is you can have a lot of innovative ideas and identify trends and bring people together, but it's sort of what grows out of this. And so what I think with the, the forum on legal evolution that was interesting to me was there's really good energy. And it seems like Bill Henderson and Dan Katz really have some ideas they're driving forward. Bruce McEwen's involvement is a good thing to me. So there's energy. Plus, I like the notion that the academic world is reaching out to the practicing world and they're pulling in the technology people. And that approach seems a little bit different. So I'm curious to see whether they can build an organization out of this, at least a loose organization, and then what happens you know, with the people who get involved in that. Can you bring them together to kind of harness some of the disparate ideas? Because as we know from ABA Tech Show, a lot of people who have these great ideas and are interested in this stuff are the only person in their firms who are interested in some of the things they are. Well, we will see what happens. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. So in March, in the ABA Journal, my uh, tech column was about something called gamification, which is the use of game thinking and game mechanics in non-game contexts to engage users in actually solving problems in what people hope is a fun way. This is something we see in many, many places these days, from uh, social media platforms like Foursquare to internal training programs. In the column, I suggest a few ways law firms might experiment with gamification. Tom is the former mayor, as I recall, of several places in Dallas on Foursquare. Do you think gamification might actually appeal to lawyers? Well, first of all, I resent the word former because I am still the mayor of several locations in Dallas, although I'm not sure I'm pleased to say that or proud to say that. But, you know, I think this is an interesting subject because it's something that a lot of people can really understand and, and get behind, and it speaks to people's competitive nature. That said, I really think that whether gamification appeals to lawyers really depends on the generation of lawyers that you're talking about. I think older generation of lawyers will have 
more trouble in general adapting to this. I think you know these are the same people who are going to roll their eyes when I check into a place on Foursquare. Although I must say that uh, now that I, my mother is playing Candy Crush on a regular basis, I may have to, to eat my words on that and that folks of older generations can take to games and things like that. But I, I really do think that the younger generations who are used to, to used to playing video games, used to playing games on their phone, will respond better to doing this. And, and I think that one reason why gamifying, if we could call that a word, lawyer tasks is intriguing is that lawyers as a species are competitive by nature. So I think introducing matters in the form of a contest would appeal to lawyers who like contests. So I'm intrigued by this. I think it's a, an interesting concept. Dennis, what are your thoughts on it? You know, I like the idea. I'm not that much of a game person, but when I talk about gamification, I include things like where you get points for doing things, you reach certain levels, you get rewards, Maybe there's even a leaderboard. So some of the ideas I've had and some of the things people have done are the worst thing of you know getting people to turn in their time. You could do you can turn that into a game, give points, badges, you know, rewards for turning your timesheets in, building in collections. That's another place where I could see you, you know, you give people points or badges and you have a leaderboard so people could see, you know, who's actually collecting their bills. And that the the competition between people could be could be good. And and there are a number of other things. I know that there are some some law firms have experimented with using, you know, putting online quizzes on subject matter areas as a as a form of marketing. So, you know, like you said, that there's all kinds of people doing all kinds of games and that whole notion of levels and, you know, badges and extra lives and stuff like that. And we have a whole generation coming up that's done Nintendo and other things their whole lives. Well, you know, I agree. I think that these types of games are most successful or most useful for those types of activities that are the more mundane, the, the things that lawyers don't like to do. Entering time is that is the huge example of that. Although I think I would go a step further. I don't think I would offer points or leaderboards or things like that because I can check into a place on Foursquare and get a couple of points and yep, I'm number one in the leaderboard among my friends and that doesn't do a whole lot. However, combine that, you know, on Foursquare, for example, merchants have gotten savvy and said, if you're the mayor here, then you get a free drink with any purchase of a meal. Or if you check in on to Pinkberry on Foursquare, you get 10% off on uh, on whatever you order. Making it more interesting by offering prizes or I won't say cash rewards because I think we get into some murky ethical waters there. But I think that making it more interesting would be more intriguing to me and something that I would like to see. One other thing that I think is interesting is that this whole notion of gamification is really not just for lawyers. I I know that there are some folks out there who are developing similar types of games for more access, accessible law for clients or for consumers. You know, Steph Kimbrough, who we both know through our work with the ABA, is developing some games like a game called Estate Quest or a, a game called the Eviction Game, which help consumers learn more about those legal concepts in the context of a game. And I think that that's another way that providing information in the form of a game or a competition is going to be really useful now and, and into the future. And now it's time for our parting shots. That one tip, website, or observation you can use a second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. 
So I was reading an article on Lifehacker, and it's actually an article for a website called I Done This, which I that's why I like the Lifehacker article better because I'm not sure I like the, the I Done This blog. Um, but it's an article called How the Fast Web is Impairing How You Think. And I think that some of you may be familiar with the whole slow food concept that eating your food slower, more deliberately is better for you than wolfing down your food. And I think that, uh, that this article tries to make the same argument for the way that we consume information on the internet and how um, rather than withdrawing from digital things, because I know there are people who advocate completely disconnecting and doing things, it's more advocating what they would call mindful interaction with what you're seeing rather than uh, immediately responding to headlines and voting and tweets and responding to an email and checking a feed religiously and really taking the time to appreciate and to analyze and to think about the things that you are, are seeing rather than making snap judgments. And I think that that the argument is, is that the whole notion of the fast web is making us more prone to snap judgments, more prone to short attention spans and thinking about things too quickly. And I think it's well worth a read. Uh, I'll put links in the show notes so you can take a look at it because I, I, I tend to agree that it's, it's really affecting the way that we think and the way that we treat other people and the way that we form opinions these days. Dennis? Yeah, that's something we might talk about, Tom, in the, in the future as I think about it. So the other day, basically a couple of days ago, I saw that Getty Images, which has like 70 million great photos of art and other, you know, all kinds of things, had the, the typical problem you would expect of people just grabbing copies of, of their pictures online and, and using them in all sorts of places. So they came up with this policy change that says that on web pages and social media, you can embed some of these pictures. And I think it's 35 million of the pictures right now. And so I just became really enthused about this because we all know that for blog posts, web pages, you know, social media, having a great picture or a great photo in them can be really significant and help you in search engines and other things. And here was this great repository of really great pictures that you could use, and all it took was embedding them. And so I just think this is potentially a, a great idea. And so I asked the question, I did a tweet where I said, is this going to be revolutionary? And so far, everybody who responded, who are people I respect and are really involved in web stuff, have said that I'm crazy. And they, <laughs> they, don't, they just don't think it's going to be an important thing at all. But I'd like people, the listeners, to kind of take a look at this and think about it to say, what if I can do for free? I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to get the permissions. All I have to do is embed in a frame that says it comes from Getty Images these great photos, isn't that a good thing than trying to figure out all the rights that are associated with photos or taking your own photos? I totally agree. I, although I think that that's easily the best story of the week. Although I would disagree that it's revolutionary and say that it's a natural evolution of the whole images on the internet, that uh, that Getty's finally gotten the idea that rather than deal with people who are stealing images or are not concerned with uh, whatever intellectual property rights attached to images, they've found a way that not only they can make those available to people in a way that protects their legal rights to that image, but they've also found a way they can try 
track who's using their images all over the place by doing that embedding. So I think it's a brilliant move for everybody involved. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, is available on our show notes blog at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site. You can get to the archives of all of our previous podcasts in both places as well. If you have a question that you want answered or a topic for an upcoming podcast, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet at tkmreport. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by rating this podcast or writing a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.